0: In Philippians 4, four through seven, God speaks to us in his word. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning, guys. It's glad, I'm glad to be with you. Um, it's exciting to get to open the word together and just see what God has to say about our lives. And um, yeah, I've, I've actually been able to be a part of this church for a long time, basically my whole Christian life. I got saved uh, when I was 17. And I came directly to OBU and then I've been at Frontline ever since. And so that was over a decade ago. And I can faithfully say watching this church as it's been formed and grown that we're a healthy church. And the reason why is because God is with us. And that I think is the foundation for what we're doing today. Why why we can open the Bible and we can see how God is with us and why we can trust it. So... Um, our church, we are a healthy church. We're full of the love for God. I think about all the faces out here who are deeply involved in our city, who are gospel witnesses for our city, people who are in the church, eager and zealous to build the body of Christ. We're a healthy church. But even for a healthy church, even with any church, there are people in it and people are broken and people are prone to anxiety. And so I think for us, even though we fall into the trap of anxiety, we have an answer in the Bible and I want to bring that for us today. So anxiety is in our blood. It's in the fabric of our beings, our circumstances, opportunities in our life, suffering. They all surprise us and uh, anxiety creeps in with little to no resistance sometimes. We get caught up in our past and our future in a way that removes God from our stories. And I, if you've spent any time around me, You know that I'm actually the worst at this. Anytime an opportunity or circumstance comes into my life, I get stuck in a rut. I'm like, I don't know what to do. I got to figure out how to make this happen. And this is why I'm preaching this text, honestly, because it's something that's spoken to me and really um, is something I'm actively working through. It's something that I'm holding with a lot of weight. So the beauty of this, though, is that the Bible is giving us an answer. It's saying anxiety doesn't have to be our companion. And this book right here, this book is not like any other book. It is perfectly powerful. It is perfectly clear. It is perfectly good. Um, It fully reveals what God's purpose is for us. And our role is to read it, love it, and be obedient to it, to submit to it. And so what it has for us today is actually something that is a better word than what we have. We don't have to live like anxiety is our companion. The Bible gives us a better word. And so I wanna bring that today and hopefully God will meet us in a way that gives me and all of us true repentance and peace. So. Let me pray for you and I'm gonna pray for me and pray for you <laughs> uh, so you can pray for me too. Jesus, we thank you that, uh, that you are present with us. You're present with us um, here today. You're present in your word. You're not far from us, God. I pray that you would be near to us today. I pray that you would let us feel your presence. Let us see what you have to say to us in the midst of all the things, all the circumstances, the opportunities, suffering that, that clouds our vision, anxiety. Give us peace today, let us see who you are and what you have to say, amen. So if we were to poll the world, I think we would pretty much all agree that the world says anxiety is inevitable. You basically can't escape it, it's gonna be a part of your life and that really makes peace this idea that seems unattainable. And there's a lot of reasons why that can happen. I mean, each of us could write out probably pages of what could make us anxious in this world and I just wanna give you a couple. We're overconnected as people, just having this thing in our pocket means that I could text any person I know right now and then expect that they should pick up their phone and immediately text me back and that we could have a really fruitful conversation at any point. That's a really kind of unreasonable expectation, a new one. Also, this phone lets us look at anything that's happening in the globe at any time. And then not only that, once we've read about it, we have to have an opinion and a defense for why or should or should not be happening. That's a lot of weight for one person to have and we all have it because we have phones. We're also overstimulated everywhere we turn there's something new and because it's new it's also necessary that we have to buy it whether that be for us or for our kids we also have to be constantly entertained there's no space or even maybe even a desire to be quiet at this point in our life i was saw a video on my phone and it's like two videos now you know it's not just one video that i'm watching it's it's constant it's overstimulating it's just having to be entertained constantly and then also every moment of our life should and can be efficient. We have to maximize every moment of our life to make it the best that we possibly can. And that's really overwhelming. That's a very stimulating thing to put on us. We're also over-counseled. Google and YouTube have really sold us the lie that we could figure anything out. I could go into Google and type, here's the problem I'm having and then I will get an answer. And that kind of builds this disposition in ourselves that we can actually find solutions to anything. We have the solution for everything. And we actually apply that same thing to therapy and counseling. Those are good things. They are designed to give us tools to contest our anxiety. They're not actually there to just fix it. They're not solutions. They're tools. They're used to contend with our anxiety. So we're over-counseled as people. Anxiety... As it stands, it's just not something we can avoid. It's a part of the world. It's part of the fall. It's a part of what we have to deal with in our lives. But we treat anxiety with so much power that it feels like peace is unattainable, that we can never grasp peace, that peace is just always gonna be far from us. But the truth is the Bible, the thing that we're gonna have to submit to as people if if we follow Jesus is it actually has a different word. We, on the other hand, give anxiety a room in our house. We basically set up a room, we make the bed for it, we let it eat our groceries, we do its laundry. We feel defenseless to its demands. Um, And if we don't, maybe we're here and we're like, I don't feel anxious, I've never really felt anxious. Well, we could white-knuckle our way through life and try and ignore anxiety, but at some point, life is literally gonna get us on our knees and make us admit, despite all of our best efforts, that we can't escape the circumstances of life. We can't stop our lives from being broken and painful. It's gonna happen. And so what we need is to take that feeling of anxiety and we need to bring it to the table. As a church, I'm bringing it for myself. We need to bring it together and say, what can actually give us peace? What do we need? What do we need in the midst of anxiety? Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians and they're a very healthy church. They're very similar to our church, honestly. Paul, in his letter, rejoices over their unity, their defense of the gospel, their love for God. All those things, I think I would say the same thing about our church. We are all those things, but yet... And even if, even if it was all perfect, like the Philippians would get the most glowing recommendation letter from, from Paul, it's like, yes, they're good to go. He doesn't actually leave it there. He says, we still need to grow. And he says it for himself first. He says, this is earlier in Philippians. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, meaning I haven't made it to this place of perfection where I don't have to grow anymore. He says, one thing I do, forget what lies behind and I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul wants the Philippians to forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. And these words, these two words straining and pressing on, they carry a deep intensity in their original language. They even have, uh, pressing on was used previously in the New Testament to describe the pursuit of a fugitive. And if you've ever watched Cops, like I did growing up, then you know that, (laughs) It takes a lot of energy to pursue a fugitive. They are running for their lives and you're running after them. That's the type of energy that Paul is bringing to this, this straining, this pressing on the things that we have to do as Christians, they take work. It's not like we just sit around and God does the work for us. We are with him in the work, right? So Paul is saying we must move, we must act to mature. So what is straining in the life of the Christian who looks to Christ like he says and not their circumstances? What does that look like? Well, for my first point, I wanna talk about this idea that trust actually follows obedience. So I think if we were to lay it out, a lot of times we think that we will be, we will trust things that are worth trusting. Like we get to decide what's worth trusting, but the Bible is so much different. It actually says to be obedient and God is the one who's faithful. He's the one who will be faithful to us. And so what Paul is going to do is explain kind of this idea of being obedient first and trust following in behind that. God being the one who's faithful, not us. So his command to the, the Philippians is rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. How could we do this? I mean, if we were to lay out what all is happening in our lives, it's we have brokenness, fractured relationships, pain, maybe even in our bodies, in our lives, right? How could we rejoice always? It seems like Maybe an impossible task. So, either Paul is being cruel by giving us an impossible task, or maybe there's a different option. I think what Paul is saying is we can actually choose joy by rejoicing. It's not because we can't always feel joy, it's actually we discipline ourselves to feel joy. Rejoicing means literally to be glad or to rejoice. We can't always control our feelings, right? I, our feelings well up inside of us, but what we can do is control our actions. And that's what Paul is going to lead us to. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. We can return to joy. We can go back to the original place where we were given joy. Joy as Christ has given us. Remember that we've been given joy. Paul is giving us a command as well. This is not like, do this if you feel like it, because our feelings are not what is true. We have to be obedient. Paul is calling us to obedience. The battle we face is to rejoice even when we don't feel like it. There's this weird dichotomy that we've created in our world where we feel like we have to satisfy, satisfy our feelings because we trust them before we trust God. That our feelings are more true than God is. But that's backwards. It's, we, we've built this economy and we want God to prove himself more true than our feelings, so then I'll be obedient. If you can prove yourself better than what I feel, then now I'll be obedient. But this, isn't, this is backwards. Oswald Chambers is a, an old theologian. He says this about obedience. He says, there must be a surrender of the will. Not a surrender by persuasive power, a deliberate launching forth on God and what he says until I am no longer confident in what I have done. I'm confident only in God. The hindrance, this is where we get stuck, is that we will not trust God, but only our mental understanding. And as far as feelings go, we have to stake all of our feelings blindly on Christ. I must will to believe and this can never be done without a violent effort on my part to disassociate myself from my old ways of looking at things and by putting myself right on over to him. That idea that he says I must will to believe and it takes violent effort, that's that idea, that straining, that pressing on. It's not something that just happens. We have to actually put work towards it. We have to discipline ourselves. And I think about Mary when I think about obedience. Mary was this unmarried virgin girl who literally could have been killed she could have been stoned for having an illegitimate pregnancy but god promised her he said behold you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name jesus he will be great and will be called the son of the most high if she were to write down all the reasons why this is crazy she would have a lot she would not be able to like reason out why she should trust god in this it seems like something crazy but what she does instead is she's obedient She's obedient even though she can't see all of the circumstances, right? She says, Behold, I am the Lord's servant. This is the call of obedience. This is Mary's our example in how we be obedient. And Paul's calling us to be obedient, not based on our feelings or circumstances, but on God's good order. So earlier in Philippians, Paul encourages them saying, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God knows our every thought. He knows all of our circumstances and yet he gives us the promise that he's actually after our good. That's how we rest in the midst of anxiety. God is the one who upholds. He's the true one, not us. We are obedient to the one who's true. So then we rejoice. We rejoice in the Lord always. Why do we rejoice? We rejoice because there's literally nothing better in your life no greater accomplishment or thing that you can be given that would be better than the gospel. At the highest point of your life or at the lowest, it will always be the most true, good, and beautiful thing that we submit our lives to. The work we have to do, the straining, the pressing on the work we have to do is to be obedient, to rejoice, even when we don't feel joyful. This requires us to break up the dogmatic idea that our feelings are always true, that our feelings cannot be argued with, that they can't be changed. Eugene Peterson has this really great book called Long Obedience in the Same Direction, and I'd recommend anybody and everybody to read it. He says, we live in what one writer has called the age of sensation. We think that if we don't feel something, there can be no authenticity in doing it. But the wisdom of God says something different. It always does. That we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting Worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. If that was true, we would never worship. When we obey the command to praise God and worship, our deep essential need to be in relationship with God is nurtured. And this is why Mary, in the midst of all the unreasonable, the promise, like, right, there's nothing that she could work up to prove that this would work out. Her obedience culminates in a song of rejoicing. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Look who she's, she's claiming, God is her savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. God is near to her. God is faithful and she is obedient. God is the one who holds everything together, not her, not us. We are called to obedience first, therefore we rejoice. And trust follows that God does his part of working out his promises to us. He is faithful to work out our good. What's the result? Our result is that our reasonableness is known to all. What this means is this word carries like reasonableness or gentleness or I think about sobriety. Rejoicing creates a sober people. If you've ever known someone who has to fight through sobriety, looking to like gain sobriety from something, they are disciplined people. It requires discipline. And that's what Paul is calling us to. He says, Let your reasons be known to everyone, and that requires that we discipline our feelings and our choices to choose something better than what we might choose instead. And that thing that we're choosing is joy. That's what it means to rejoice. We're going to choose to return back to the joy that God has given us. That means we're not impulsive. It means that we're not grasping because we actually know what is good. We don't have to look farther than that. We don't have to rush around chasing that which won't satisfy us. If we will actually try this, if we will settle into the reality of rejoicing always, we will spend so much time with joy himself, Jesus Christ, that we will become reasonable people and that will be our witness to everyone. We will be satisfied people, people who are sober. But if you're like me, and I'm pretty sure you are, you don't spend all your days rejoicing. That's a hard reality to hold, right? This takes that that straining, that pressing on. I find myself anxious whenever I feel like my life is inefficient or I feel powerless to my surroundings and I have a two-year-old and that makes me very well aware that I, things are inefficient and I am powerless. So uh, what, why don't we do this? Why don't we do what Paul has commanded? What stands in the way of us returning to joy? Well, when we can't see what God is doing, let alone trust him, we feel like we have to take matters into our own hands. If we can't see all of it. If Mary would have not been obedient, she would have been like, I have to hide my pregnancy. I have to figure out how to take care of this, right? She's just trusting God though. So this is a new struggle. This has been a part of us for the all time. When the fall happened, we became people who trusted ourselves and not trusted God. And in the Old Testament, God created this system of worship and remembrance where he would have, when he would show up and rescue the people of Israel, whether he parted the Red Sea or part of the Jordan River and saved his people, he would tell them to take a stone and set it and build an altar out of stones. And he would call it an Ebenezer, which we just sung about in that song, Come Thou Fountain. Ebenezer, it really means just a stone of remembrance. It was a placing, a physical, tangible thing that said, I'm not God. God is the one who saves, not me. That's what this is. That's what being obedient to rejoices is, is to set an Ebenezer and say, I'm gonna go back to the only one who is true, the only source of joy. The beauty of the Ebenezer was that they would take their families back to those places, to those original places where God was faithful, and they would show them and would tell the story of God's faithfulness. That's what we need. That's what uh, Paul is talking us, uh, leading us to. These stones reminded God's people that He was with them, that He was with them in the midst of trouble, and that's what Paul is going to remind the Philippians next. So the next point I have is what we fear, we worship. So let me say that again: what we fear worship our fears are tied directly to our worship and paul's going to address that so why does paul command that we return to joy it's because the truth that god is actually with us and to translate this in a different way it means the lord is near he's close he's come to live with us we just came out of advent that jesus actually came to earth right he's come close to us he's put on humanity It's nestled directly in the center of what Paul is commanding the Philippians to do because it's actually, it's the cornerstone. It's where all the balance of these commands comes from is that God is with you, do not be anxious about anything or rejoice in the Lord always, God is with you. This is the core of what Paul is building his commands off you. Now compare that to the image of anxiety living in your home, making you fold and do its laundry. God actually has chosen to live with you. God has not only taken up residence in your home, but he's taken up residence in you, himself. Anxiety and God separate. They're like oil and water, and putting God, its presence in front of anxiety makes anxiety flee. And so that's what Paul's gonna instruct them to do. When we are anxious, though, and we don't turn to God, it feels like he's miles away, but the truth is he's near. It's, that's why Paul is saying the Lord is at hand. Anxiety is this thing that gives a blinder. It's like blinders to truth and reason. And all we can see is our circumstances. This is why Paul leads us directly to do not be anxious about anything, which would seem really cruel to the world. This would be like gaslighting to the world to say, like, don't be anxious about anything. It's like telling someone who's sick, get over it, get better. Um, if I like stood on a street corner with this sign, I probably would get beat up or something, right? Like, but the truth is the Bible is true. It's, this is something that we have to submit to. We have to consider and actually apply to our lives. At the end of the day, we're enmeshed with our anxiety. It's become a part of our identity. This idea of anxiety is so wrapped up inside of us that we actually have to do the work to identify and admit that we're anxious because we're afraid. There's this really good book uh, by Ed Welch, it's really small, it's it's called um, For An Anxious Heart. He says, we desire to manage our lives because we aren't sure that he will be faithful. The result is high anxiety. Deep in our hearts, we know that we are not up to the task. Our fears are actually what fuel our anxiety. And our fears are also connected directly to our worship. And so when we make anxiety our idol, when we fear our circumstances more than we fear God, there's only one person who's worthy of worship. And it's not our circumstances, it's God. This is why God calls us to obedience first. King Solomon was a king in the Old Testament who was known for the wisdom of God. And he's walked the earth looking for God's wisdom. He's the guy who said, there's nothing new under the sun. He's seen it all. And at the end of his life, there's this conclusion. This is what he says. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. This is just as true for him in that day as it is for us. And the fear of the God is actually just to have awe and love for God, it's respect. It's reverence, it's being honest about who is God and who is not. This is what Paul is leading us to. What we fear is what we worship. Job was also a man in the Bible, in the Old Testament, who feared God. He was known for fearing God. And take all the worst intrusive thoughts that you could have about what could happen to your life, your family falling apart, losing your home, anything happening. Job had all those things happen to him. He lost all of his children, they died. He lost his home. It was said that he was the greatest man in the land, meaning he had more than we will ever have. He lost all of it. And at the end of his life, at the end of his story, there's this moment where he stands before God, just him. Just picture him in front of God and he questions God. And God in the middle of his chaos of his life, after losing everything, God brings his full and powerful presence. And Job's response is our model. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. What truly brought Job peace was God's presence and his fear of the Lord, not a change in his circumstances. He was brought near to God. And so for my third point, what Paul leads us perfectly to is that God's presence is actually what we need. We need God's presence in the midst of anxiety. He says, right after this, if we were to take the whole sentence out, it's the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving; let your requests be made known to God. This is important because Paul is actually saying, "The Lord is at hand. Rejoice always, and also do not be anxious anything, but instead, but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving." He knows this because when anxiety hits, prayer is usually the first thing to go. Our instinct is to try and control. Like Ed Welch said, we want to. We're not sure if God's actually going to be faithful. And the beauty of these things is that they're all actions. They're choices. They're things that we can actually discipline ourselves to do, to be prayerful people. To, that means just talking with God. That gets us into God's presence. Supplication is pleading humbly with God, asking him for help. Thanksgiving is literally giving thanks to God. And that's important because gratitude is actually powerful. It gives us perspective. It reminds us what God has done for us. It displaces anxiety's power and it takes the blinders off of what anxiety forces on us for us not to be able to see the truth. Gratitude reminds us what has God done for us? Prayer gets us in front of Jesus. It literally gives us communion with joy, hope, peace, all these virtues to our person. It's Jesus. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, He's the wonderful counselor. The problem is that we're broken. We don't do this. We typically pray backwards. James says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We pray like God is here to fix our problems or to give us the comfort we think we deserve. But the truth is he's not transactional. God has never been a God of transaction. He's been a God of relationship. This is why Paul says, let your requests be made known to him. He isn't dismissing us. He isn't saying, be quiet, stop being anxious. He's saying, bring your requests to God. He's your father and you are his child. Pray like it. So, Eugene Peterson goes on to say this about prayer, and this is important. Prayer is not an attempt to get God to do what he is unwilling otherwise to do. God is willing. But it's actually, prayer is a reaching out to what we know that he does do. It's a return. It goes back to what he does do. It's an expressed longing to receive what God is doing and has done for us in Christ Jesus. So we grow maturity tangibly by closing the distance between anxiety and prayer. When anxiety strikes, we turn to prayer quickly. Instead of being two days of anxious and then praying, we turn it to two hours. This is what the Bible says to do, it's true. This is, this is a good word for us. This is the, literally, it's the most clear, perfect, powerful word that we can submit our lives to. And it actually gives us a remedy for anxiety. It says it. I mean, we can't deny it. It's a remedy for anxiety. Prayer, the presence of God, it's what we need. But I'll be the first to say that even though this is true, even though I'm the person preaching this sermon, that I do not have this figured out. It is not easy. It's not easy. It's straining. It's, it's pressing on. And what is the answer then? What is the answer to every prayer of thanksgiving, of supplication, of every prayer of a child to their father? He says, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If we will do what Paul commands, if we will be obedient to rejoice, to bring our prayer, our prayerful presence in the midst of anxiety, the promise is the peace of God, which will always surpass our understanding. There's no way you could reason out for me why God should choose us. There's no reason, we, turn, we choose anything over God. We trust our feelings. We're obedient to our feelings first. We reject him at every turn. God is the one who gives us his peace. Uh, Jesus says in John, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. It's a gift, but it's not as the world gives do I give to you. It's not the world's peace. It's different. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's anxiety. He says his peace is different. It's not circumstantial. It's eternal. It's the one defense our fearful and anxious hearts need. And that's exactly what Paul says it does. It will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. If you ask any parent here, I promise you that they would protect their children at any cost. When my daughter is at risk, my whole body becomes alert and my ears get hot and I'm like, I feel like I gotta do something. I wanna defend her, right? This is the type of promise that God is giving us here. He's on guard. He's garrisoned to defend us, but it's not in the way we expect. It's through humility. It's through rejoicing, gentleness, gratitude, reasonableness. So if all this is true, which it is because it's the Bible, why do we still feel anxious? Why can't we get over this feeling? And I think what Jesus talked about here about this idea of peace, the peace that actually is the promise, there's a difference to the peace that he's promising. There's a worldly peace and then a peace of God. And what the worldly peace says is I deserve a good life. I deserve to have my desires fulfilled and even I deserve to have grace and mercy, and I expect them all at no cost. This is the brokenness. that are, This is the expectation that we have. And when we don't get it or it's not what we expect, we get anxiety. But God's peace is a promise. He will pursue us even when we didn't deserve it, even when we were dead. He is the one who came after us. He's not promising to give us the good life of a big home and Disneyland every summer. He's giving us life itself. He is the fulfillment of every desire we have. And we don't deserve his grace or mercy, but he gives it to us fully and freely. When we rejoice in the true peace of God, which is the gospel, we get his peace. And we also get a defense to the false peace of the world. So how do we contest anxiety? I think about, um, I think about Jesus in the garden when he is actually he's anxious to the point of sweating blood. He's praying and what he does immediately in anxiety is he takes his prayerful presence to God. He requests, he makes requests, but at the end of the day, what does he do? He submits. He's obedient to God. But he does what, he's a model for us. This is what we should do. When he's anxious, because he was anxious, it's not sinful to be anxious, but what we do need to do is take it in prayer to God and then be obedient to him otherwise. When we become obedient, joyful and prayerful people, we replace the power of anxiety with the power of God's presence. If you've ever seen Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, there's a scene in the very beginning where he goes into this temple and he's like, comes to the very end of all these traps and there's a golden idol here and he's got a bag of sand, he's weighing it, and he's like dumps out a little sand. And he, he holds it and then at the very end, he like replaces it. And that's what we have to do with God's presence. We actually have to take the power of anxiety, remove it, and instead place God's presence and get the prize we take God's presence with us and we leave anxiety in the, in the dark cave, right? We'll walk away, we walk away. It takes great effort though. It took Indiana Jones walking through like all these traps and swinging with his whip, right? It's like, it's hard work. Um, but we must continually discipline our minds and our hearts to things that are better than this world can offer. This is what Eugene Peterson meant by long obedience in the same direction. This is our arsenal against anxiety. It's the presence and the peace of God. Prayer becomes our Ebenezer. It's the stone in which we return back to. We go back to the presence of God. We go back to the joy that He's given us. God is the one who's faithful, and we are obedient. So, a couple of diagnostic questions to think about. Where are you afraid to be obedient to God? What's standing in the way of your obedience? Where are areas where gratitude and thanksgiving need to be kindled amid anxiety? Where are you looking for the world's peace and not the eternal peace of God? Let Job's prayer be your foundation in anxiety. This is the proclamation of every Christian life. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And we can rest assured that God's purpose always has been and always will be for our good and his glory. He's always been after us. And his purpose will not be thwarted. This is the peace of God. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that from the very beginning, you've always been after us. And that even when we try and get in the way and try and make sure that we get your peace, that you still pursue us. And even when we don't want it, you still pursue us. I pray that you would give us soft hearts to to trust you and to rejoice in what you have done for us. Let us be grateful, thankful, prayerful people. We thank you. Amen.